Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to another episode of the Comrade Cast. And I'm not going to lie to you guys today, I'm actually feeling a little bit down for this episode. And the reason I'm feeling down is because we just had our first snow here in the wonderful city of Edmonton, Alberta. Today it plummeted to a negative 10 degrees Celsius, which is 14 degrees Fahrenheit, um, for those of you who don't want to do the conversion regardless though it got incredibly cold and then snowed so it looks like we're gonna have a white halloween up here in alberta which is typical but i was hoping that it wouldn't be the case i always like the snow to come after october and it's always a blessing so today i feel like i'm gonna pick myself up a little bit and that's something about this show in general and i was talking with somebody and they were asking me questions about the show. They were interested and they were asking me why I did it. And I was telling them like one of the reasons I do this show is because that it is in a way very therapeutic for me. I do believe that in a lot of ways, our creative work is a way of externalizing our pain for the world to see. And in some ways, that externalization helps us exercise that pain, that anger, that dissatisfaction, whatever it happens to be. And that is honestly a big aspect of the show for me, is taking a lot of my anger and dissatisfaction about the status of a lot of things in the world and being, and being able to externalize that and, in a way, exercise it in the process Oh, good. I can see that while I was talking, although to be fair right now, it is very late at night. I am recording this at 1 a.m. because again, night shift. So we're recording right in the middle of the night. And as I was talking, I saw the temperature drop from negative 10 to negative 11 degrees Celsius. So lovely. Anyway, enough jibber jabber. Today, I'm going to hopefully enlighten myself a little bit by doing something that makes every communist happy, every socialist happy, and in fact, a lot of right-leaning people happy as well, and that is shitting on landlords. But the reason I wanted to do this is actually I wanted to tie into a topic that I wanted to talk on the show for a while, which is how today as capitalists aren't like the capitalists of olden times, right? The... <laughs> The modern capitalists are not like your Adam Smith, ye olde capitalists of, of Karl Marx's time. You know, the game has changed a little bit to the point where a lot of people who call themselves capitalists today would read some of Adam Smith's original work and declare him to be a liberal. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, because if you want to be a true capitalist, then you too will hate landlords. Let us begin here by reading a quote here. This meme, I just... Ugh, chef's kiss. It's one of my favorite memes ever posted on my Discord. So great is this meme that it is one that has been filed away for future use and reference. Right here, we have a quote. Landlord's right has its origins in robbery. The landlords, like all men love to reap what they have never sowed, and demand rent for even the natural produce of the earth. Adam Smith, photo of Mao Zedong is unrelated. So one of the things you guys may not know is that classical capitalists 
surprisingly difficult thing to say, really do not like rent. And not just rent in terms of like a living situation, like you're paying something to a landlord. There are a number of situations in which rent is frowned upon uh, by the capitalist. The reason that rent is frowned on by the capitalists is because it is economically unproductive in the sense that you are gaining a profit as a landlord for really doing nothing at all to add value into the economy. So we're going to get into a little bit of economics. Hooray! And you may think that a guy like me, who is professed to be extraordinarily left-leaning, might not know a lot about capitalism and economics and economic theory. But the thing is, I, I really enjoy studying this kind of stuff. Not just do I find it personally fulfilling, but there is the whole know your enemy type of aspect to this. One of the things that is really frustrating is like when people would be like, you're a communist, but you engage in capitalist systems. It's like, well, bro, I fucking live here. I have no choice. Like, what do you want me to do? Just fucking lay down and die and just not engage with the system that I'm born into? I'm sure they would just like us to lay down and die. But the fact of the matter is that while I may still be very much so opposed to the system in which I live in and will actively do everything in my power to change it, I still have to play the cards in which I'm dealt. So I still have to understand the rules of the game. So let's talk about a normal, typical business cycle in an ideal capitalist system. Ideally, how they would like everything to work and how they would like everything to be running. All right, so instead of just drawing wildly, I'm going to try and bring some order to this with actual pictures and crap. So let's say you are a capitalist and you got your wheelbarrow full of money and you've just got a vision in your brain. You've got a burning passion for how you want to use this money, how you want to invest it and bring a business to light. How you got the money, some may ask. Let's not ask too many questions about that. Okay, guys, let's see if we got the money now. Let's we'll leave it as it is. So, all right, you got your money and you want to start a business. What business do you want to make? So, you have decided that you are living in a city that is just absolutely spindleless. You're spindleless in Seattle. So, you decide that you are going to found the one, the only, the spindle factory. So, you buy all the materials you need, you buy the machines, you buy the warehouse, you hire the workers, and you start pumping out spindles like there's no tomorrow. So you've done your research, hopefully, and hopefully there are actually people out there who want to buy your spindles, because if there isn't, that's kind of where this whole endeavor falls apart. But if there is, and you thankfully have hopefully found a market, and you have found a market for your spindles, and you are selling them to the very eager customers of Spindleless in Seattle, and they are buying them up like there's no tomorrow. So great, things are going good. You're selling to your market, and hopefully you've set your price point right at a level that you're selling your spindles at a higher rate than it costs to make them. So then, of course, if you have done that, then you will have achieved your ultimate goal of getting a profit from your business, and thus, if you have completed everything correctly, you will have completed the cycle of capitalism. You will have 
taken your money at the start of the wheel, invested it in the proper materials necessary for business. You will then sell your business to a market of consumers who will hopefully buy what you've made for what it costs to make it, plus a profit. And then, of course, is the great power of, of the wheel of capitalism, because now uh, that the money has come back to the capitalist at the top, if he has done his job right, he will have, again, reaccrued his money, plus a profit. All right, uh, we can see the final piece of the puzzle now. The capitalist can take his profit and do whatever he wants with it. He can use it to start another business. He can invest it. He can use it to buy yachts. Whatever he wants to do, it's his to do with as he chooses. All right, the ultimate belief being is that over time, the capitalist will take his profits and use it to maybe buy other things, which will stimulate other businesses. Maybe he will start a business and that will stimulate job growth. Maybe he'll put it in the stock market and then thus it will be used to invest in other businesses. So the whole argument is that this is like a self-perpetuating loop, right? And that if this is done properly, it will continue to generate profit, which will then be used to, again, invest in other things and keep generating and so on and so on. So I might say, okay, comrade, whatever, this is all well and good. I love this little picture that you've created for us. But what the hell does this have anything to do with landlords and specifically why capitalists hate landlords? Let me show you. So now we have the same scenario. However, instead of the capitalist building the factory by themselves, owning the factory by themselves, let's say there's someone else that already owns this land, already owns a factory or warehouse space, and the capitalist is unable to acquire land elsewhere or is able to unable to build the warehouse themselves now all of a sudden they have to pay rent they have to pay lease to someone else to own this factory space so we can draw here <laughs> we won't put it in one of the nice arrows one of these crappy little bit of money being leached off the system now to our factory leaseholders so now the capitalist has to spend a little bit more on top of the material goods, on top of the equipment, on top of the labor they have to pay to produce their spindles. Now they have to pay an additional cost, which is a lease cost on top of everything. And not only that, this is a cost which will never go away. For example, if you built the spindle factory or bought the spindle factory land yourself, Perhaps this would be a greater cost up front. However, eventually that cost would go away as you paid off the debt and as your spindle factory continued to make a profit. Now, however, a little bit of the money that you would need to start your business is now being leached off by this leaseholder, by this rent holder for effectively nothing. So what's the end result for all this? Why does the capitalist hate this? or maybe hate is a strong word, D dislike. <laughs> Why does the capitalist, capitalist dislike this? Because at the end of the day, it results in smaller profits for no overall gain in production. Therefore, you have smaller profits. The capitalist is able to invest in less businesses and able to buy less goods. Money moves around the system slower, and it's overall a drag on the economy. So the economic term for this is called economic rent. 
And this is again different from profit because profit is uh, seen as the end goal of this cycle, right? It's not intervening in the cycle. It's not trying to take shortcuts within the cycle. And that's again why uh, Adam Smith has such vehement hatred towards the landlords. Sorry, another thing I forgot to mention, of course, what the capitalists can do with the profit is, again, reinvest it into the spindle factory so we can buy better machines, hire more workers, and so on and so forth. And that, too, increases, hopefully, his amount of profits. Again, it all works towards either making the cycle move faster or having more cycles. Either way, though, the point is that the landlord is siphoning off that momentum for no production. Regardless though, economic rent is different from profit. Again, the main reason is because it's not generated at the end of this cycle. And two, it's not productive, right? It's not something you get at the end of creation. If anything, it's a hindrance to creation. But perhaps the biggest reason why the capitalists or the, the old school capitalists really hate landlords and rent is because it takes on effectively no risk or very minimal risk because let's be real here right and this is one of the things especially my dad who is like a very old school kind of capitalist would always talk about business owners right business owners take on all the risk and there's definitely something to that because as we look at this cycle there's numerous places where this can fall apart for the capitalists he could not effectively build his business he cannot find the right ways to manufacture it. Maybe there's no market there for him to sell his spindles. Maybe he sets his pricing wrong and ends up losing money, right? There's a whole bunch of areas where this can fall apart. And yeah, there's a considerable risk for the money that the capitalist is putting in. And the factory leaseholder is putting no risk into this business for the capitalist. He's saying, hey, pay me. You can use my space. But if the capitalists, if our monopoly man here, our spindle factory goes belly up, too bad, so sad, we'll find a new tenant in a couple months. But this is only based on the commercial-based aspect of land, right? There is the whole residential, there's the whole personal aspect of land ownership and wealth. And in that sense, the capitalists hate the landlord too. Because the thing you have to remember about land-based wealth in the eyes of like the Adam Smith capitalists is that land you own needs to actually produce something. It can't just be like a place that people live and hang out. It can't just be a residential house because a residential house doesn't really produce anything. It's just people where they live and watch TV and cook dinner and shit like that. The work, the production aspects of our lives usually happen somewhere else unless you're one of the lucky ones enough to work at home. The point here is land-based wealth should come from something like a farm, which produces foods and agricultural goods, a factory that produces widgets, spindles, whatever. Even a media company downtown, that land-based production is at least they're producing something, right? Maybe it's not the greatest media you might have seen in the world, but at least they're producing something. They're not just sitting around doing nothing. The point here being is that commercial land and the wealth derived from it needs to actually come from something that land produces. And the landlord undercuts that in a major way 
by turning their property into a wealth-based mechanism for really no risk whatsoever because people are always going to need a place to sleep. Providing someone a place to sleep is not really a risky thing to do. Again, something happens to that tenant, no harm, no foul, you'll probably find one in very short order. And ultimately, the landlord produces absolutely nothing. And I am fortunate enough to be one of the dwindling people out there who are homeowners. And I thank my lucky stars every day that I was able to escape the grasp of the landlords and be able to afford my own place and afford my own house. I had to, again, live in a city that maybe not a lot of people want to live in where it snows in October. But that being said, it's a vast improvement in terms of quality of life. And you'll see some of the cope that landlords will do that they'll try and argue that they produce some sort of value. Uh, some of the things you'll see, for example, there was this one TikTok way back in the day, maybe this a couple of years ago, that did the rounds where this landlord is like, you know, when your power goes out or your plumbing goes down at two in the morning, who are you going to call? You're going to call me the landlord and I'm going to come and fix it. I'm like, bro, no, you're not. <laughs> right? No, you're not. And not only that, Here, here's how things go down. So here's my, as a homeowner, right? I have more options, way more options than someone who's at the whim of the landlord. Because if something like that happens in my house, I have the opportunity to actually fix it myself. And that is probably the thing that I'm going to try to do first. I've had the opportunity being a homeowner to do a couple of projects, had some things go down, had to fix them myself. YouTube is a great resource. <laughs> YouTube is a wonderful thing. And thanks to that, I have probably saved thousands of dollars in house repairs. And anyone can tell you, I'm not a handy guy at all. But when something goes down, I can figure out what is going wrong and then find a YouTube video that will help me fix it. In the landlord scenario, they don't want you to fix your own shit ever, right? They want you to stay as far away from that as possible. And of course, you are incentivized to do so because if you touch it and something goes wrong, now all of a sudden that's on you. And of course, that's the whole point. If something goes wrong in the house and it's your fault, you're still paying anyway. If I fuck up something in the house, I will have to pay for it. If you fuck up something in your landlord's house, you're still going to be the one to pay for it. Lord knows that landlord isn't paying it for you if they can find a way to make you pay for it. And then if something fucks up and it's not your fault, then guess what? Insurance is going to pay for it for the landlord anyway. It's not like the landlord's going to have to pay out of pocket because they're the one that's going to have the home insurance policy or whatever. And generally speaking, if something happens in a house, I've had this happen to me where there's an issue, wasn't our fault, did substantial damage to the house. And I remember when this happened, I was like freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to cost me so much money. But nope, uh, because it wasn't my fault, the home insurance covered it. And I thank my lucky stars <laughs> for that. And of course, the landlord is going to be in the same position, right? They're going to be the insurance holder. Then something happens, not their fault. They're the ones that they have to deal with insurance. Yeah, it's a pain in the ass, but it's really not that hard. So I guess there you go. I found the value. <laughs> they deal with insurance for you if something bad happens. 
But my point here is that it doesn't matter if you, you, ha you own your own place or you're at the whim of a landlord, you're still probably going to end up paying if it's your fault, not paying if it's not your fault. And at least if you own your own place, you have the opportunity to try and figure out what's going on and fix it before you might have to call in somebody to fix it for you. Anyway, I don't think I really need to spend a whole lot of time telling everybody why left-wing people hate landlords. Again, we, especially someone like me who considers himself far left, is inherently against the idea of private property to begin with, right? And we've talked about this before, and this is something that always gets misconstrued when left-wing people talk about this. We are not against privacy, A, in general, and B, we are not against people having houses and private spaces. The big thing I like to say is that I'm against private property, I'm not against personal property. Everybody needs a space to call their own, that they can feel safe in, that they can unwind in, that they can just de-stress after a hard and busy day. If anything, I would argue that is a human right. And I think a lot of left-wing people are obviously very much so on board with that notion. What we are against is against the same thing that the kind of Adam Smith capitalists are against, which is people using their private property and their personal living spaces to gain a leg up in society and gain an edge over people who don't have access to that. Again, when we're talking about private property in a uh, commercial context, right? Us and the Adam Smith capitalists have vehement disagreement. That being said, when it comes to this idea of owning a residential space for profit, we're actually both against it at the end of the day. So with that kind of out of the way, I do want to move into a warning that I have for a lot of left-wing people when it comes to housing. And that is that we have to get our shit together. We need some sort of cohesive, actual messaging when it comes to housing, besides just acknowledging that there is a crisis, because everybody is doing that now. And that is just not enough. It's just not enough to be like, yeah, there's a crisis. And we're going to try and do something about it. Or in <laughs> Dustin Trudeau's case, actively say, no, we're not going to do anything about it. And we'll come back to that in just a sec. But I want to pop over to New Zealand for a second, because this is the election which we just recently had on October 14th. So now this is 11 days ago, and I haven't had the opportunity to really talk about it. Of course, we've had a lot of things going on with Israel and Gaza, and that has really captured the attention of the world. We're not really talking about that today because it still seems to be at a stalemate, not really much to say, just besides the continued bombardment, the continued death, and the continuing uh, humanitarian crisis. Doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And Israel has still not launched its, its, uh, its proverbial ground offensive. Not too much to say on that front. Anyway, I thought maybe some people might ask what's going on. Regardless though, back to New Zealand. We had, didn't really talk about this election when it happened. And unfortunately here, labor really got its clock cleaned. This is, obviously, if we go down here, we can see that they lost a considerable number of seats, down 26 seats, and down 16 percentage points in the vote. Not good. But to me, this isn't the worst part of this election. 
another. There's some good movement here for the greens. The greens are able to pick up some seats. But the real scary part here is we have a couple parties here. These guys are called the Act Party. <laughs> Run by David Seymour. God, this guy, fuck. What's the actor this guy looks like? God damn, he looks like an actor to me. And I'm just, I'm, the name is Space. I'm spacing on the name. Regardless, though, he's just kind of like the centrist, milk toast, right-wing party. But my boy next to him here, Winston Peters, who genuinely looks like he is, his face looks like it's made of leather. He runs the New Zealand First Party, which is, again, one of those ghoulish right-wing nationalist populist parties. And they had zero seats in the last election. And even though they were only able to garner a few percentage points in the vote, gaining, ending up with only around three percentage points, their party vote in particular exploded, exploded by almost four percentage points, giving them a total of eight seats in the parliament, which is a, a huge win for them. Again, they had no seats before jumping up to eight. Obviously, they gained a huge amount of traction. And then lastly, we have the Maori party, which gained two seats. Why did labor really get schlacked in this election? And doing a little bit of research and feeling around and talking to some people, the main thing is that what really hurt labor in this election was their inability to manage the cost of living and housing crisis in New Zealand. And this is a common theme, which we're going to hear again and again. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is exactly what is going to happen in Canada in 2025, which is that we will see the left-wing party really get crushed because they have absolutely no ability to manage the housing crisis and cost of living crisis, which is gripping a lot of first world nations. And the left really needs to think about our proposition and how we're going to deal with this housing crisis because people are going to start looking towards conservative parties as the answer who aren't really going to do anything in terms of economic sense. But what they are going to promise to do is lower immigration. And that is going to be a huge win for people who have housing at the top of their mind because housing to them is easily linked to immigration. The record on that to me is dubious in some sense, but where there really is an issue is when you have very wealthy people from overseas effectively buying their way in past the system. And we have something like this here in Canada, and I'm not really sure if they have it in New Zealand. But effectively, if you have, it's like a certain amount of like liquid assets, it opens the door, for example, like a business-based option. For example, if I think this is how it works, is that if you have a bunch of money and you say that you're going to invest it in Canada, Basically, they'll say, okay, you got, you can come on in. To me, it isn't your poor Indian person who is immigrating over from New Delhi and is scraping his way through Tim Hortons, trying to pay the bills that's taking and really exacerbating the housing crisis. To me, it's these kind of Chinese billionaires and millionaires who are effectively using a economic, I don't know if you want to call it a loophole, to jump the system. And those are the people who are buying up the houses because they can actually afford it, right? And they can muscle out average middle-class Canadians in that regard. Regardless, though, the thing is that in most people's minds, at least here in this country, and I do think probably in New Zealand, probably in the United States, probably in England, 
probably in a lot of uh, Western European countries, they're going to associate increased immigration with increased housing costs. And the Conservatives will immediately gain credibility on this issue by offering to reduce immigration. As left-wing people, we either need to find a way to counteract this argument because many of us are, are rightly loathe to reduce immigration, particularly because it was a founding principle in many of these countries. We need to find a better argument against reducing immigration and or we need to find a very direct and powerful way to address the housing crisis. And to me, the main thing that needs to happen is there needs to be an absolute emphasis by the government on housing. There needs to be effectively a ministry of housing. There needs to be an entire government effort that is focused on increasing the amount of housing in this country and many other countries. One of the things, though, and I've had this argument with people that they'll counter is that, yes, we can do that. But one thing that Canada really lacks is construction workers right now is that our construction workers are basically stretched to their limits, stretched to their brim, can't. We couldn't really build more houses anymore if we wanted to because we have all of our construction workers already building houses or other projects. And to me, I say, then here is a perfect example of how we can actually use immigration to solve this issue because we can evolve and tweak our immigration system to bring in skilled construction labor from all across the world. You want to know where there's plenty of skilled construction labor that I'm sure would love to come over? To North America and build houses, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, the Philippines. It's funny that at least here, our immigration system, of course, you would think that this logically makes sense is that it would favor skilled workers from other countries, doctors, lawyers, engineers, tech specialists, that sort of thing. However, what's that, what that is really doing is freezing out a lot of average Canadians in those sectors. So they're going to other countries, right? <laughs> the skilled Canadians who are doctors, who are lawyers, who are software engineers are going to the United States or other countries, maybe potentially. And the immigration pool that we really need, the labor pool we really need is these, these kind of intermediate skilled worker, right? Not these no basic skilled workers, but people who have a trade skill, a construction skill, some sort of tangible ability to use their hands and produce something that the economy desperately needs. These are the people, these are the immigrants we actually need in this country. And they are basically the ones who would have the most difficult time coming over. They would have probably the, the, the hardest time getting an immigration visa into the country. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting way off topic. Like I said, we need to really focus in and, and find a strong message on housing. One, I think, is that we need, and most people agree with this, is that we need some sort of renewed government housing program now. <laughs> but the final conclusion, I think it seems to be that the main thing that really undercut labor was their inability to manage the housing and cost of living crisis, which, def which ballooned in their tenure, and particularly after COVID. And I think this is going to unfortunately be a reoccurring theme for a lot of left-wing parties unless they are able to figure out a very strong messaging around housing. And when I was thinking about kind of answers to this episode, 
maybe outside, because I think a lot of people are obviously aware that the state needs to intervene at some point in regards to housing. But I was looking across the world at other places that don't really have this housing crisis. And one of the places that doesn't really have this kind of housing crisis, which may very much surprise you. And that, of course, is the country of Japan. And you might be thinking, what the hell are you talking about? Japan is one of the most overcrowded and urbanized places on the planet. But yes, this is true. They are also one of the places that is suffering from a decline in population. And that decline in population is most severe in its rural areas, particularly. But yes, finding housing and space in the big three, I call them, which is Osaka, Kyoto, and Tokyo, is very difficult. These are some of the most highly, again, urbanized and populated places on the planet. Not only that, they're one of the most sought-after tourist areas on the planet. And this is something that Japan now itself is trying to deal with, which is the massive resurgence of tourism after the COVID-19 pandemic. So one of the things they're trying to do is lure people out of those, out of the big three into other areas of the country. And I really hope they are successful in this because all my favorite memories from being there all came outside of Kyoto, Osaka, and Tokyo. Honestly, I thought those places were the most overrated parts of Japan. And there's plenty of beauty outside, particularly in the rural areas and the countryside, which I absolutely fell in love with. And again, the, these areas, when you go out there, you would be shocked that you are, that this is Japan, right? It's so rural and so isolated and there's a lot less people and the infrastructure ain't so great. It is a little bit shocking how rundown things can be once you get outside of the major cities. Again, fuck, I'm rambling a lot this episode. The point here is that if you want to get a house, you can, even as a foreigner, go to one of these places as a that is looking to increase its population a small rural village you're not going to find this opportunity again in one of these major cities but you will find plenty of abandoned houses which don't have people to live in them and there will be people that will basically just say hey take over it i don't want to deal with this anymore this is your space now your headache see you later that's because a lot of these houses in these rural areas really don't have any value because nobody wants to live in there. And one of the sort of fundamental concepts about the way, you know, the Japanese people view housing is very different from the way we view housing. And this is where I'm really going with this monologue is that I, th I would like us to try and find a way that we can argue for this mentality or adopt this mentality because it is very core to the way that I think left-wing people should think about personal property. So there's this notion that in uh, Japanese culture that all housing is temporary, that the housing that the place you live in is effectively stewarded by you and your family for the time that you live there. And once you and your family move somewhere else or die or whatever, that area is just abandoned because that was your area to steward to take care of 
Now you're not there, so there's no one there, and it just becomes abandoned property. A great example of one of these kind of abandoned houses or abandoned spaces is in the Studio Ghibli film, My Neighbor Totoro, Tanari no Totoro, one of my little girl's favorite movies. In this movie, if you guys haven't seen it, what happens is that the father of this family basically buys a abandoned house in the Japanese countryside. And then when he moves in, <laughs> this house is pretty worse for wear. It's pretty dilapidated. It needs some work. Again, because this house was abandoned by the previous owners, it was no longer being cared for. But now he has it. It's his space now. And now he and his family are tasked with restoring it and caring for it and rebuilding this house. Not from the ground up, but obviously making it a livable space for them and their family again and keeping it that way. And I've always really found this attitude towards housing, towards personal space or what have you to be very interesting. And I really wish it was something that we could adopt here in more of our Western attitudes, at least that this notion of housing isn't so much a patch of land that you can hopefully use to profit on, but rather it's a patch of land that you and your family live and care for the duration that you stay there. And then when you move on to somewhere else, then either that land is claimed by another person or eventually just reclaimed by nature itself. And it's one of the reasons for all the crises that Japan is facing. One of the crises you have not heard about Japan, fa Japan facing is a housing crisis, at least in the way uh, that we are facing it here in our Western countries. Anyway, the point here is that we are facing a very fundamental crisis of housing in a lot of countries right now, and we desperately need to be doing something about it. And we on the left really need to find ways that we can combat this and think about this. I don't know how to take this idea of a home being not necessarily something that you are hoping to profit off of, but rather being a space that you take care of and is your own. I don't know how we can translate this into a political message. My point here being is that we've got to be doing something because the conservatives are giving people an answer. It is a shitty answer. It's a terrible answer. But the fact of the matter is we can't just say, yep, it exists, which is, again, not what I think your rank and file left-wing person is doing at all. Again, this is our so-called political leaders, the ones who are in the driver's seat, the ones who are actually crafting the messages which then get presented to the public. These people don't seem to understand that it's just not enough to acknowledge what's going on. We actually have to do something about it. So with that, I'm going to end this episode. Unfortunately, I don't have a feel-good story for you guys today. Like I said, feeling a little bit low energy, so I'm going to wrap it up relatively early. But I want to talk a little bit about how today's capitalists are different from the capitalists of old a little bit more, because I don't think I really expanded on that point at the beginning of the show. All right, so being a good Canadian, I've got a hockey rink for you. And this hockey rink represents the area of the market, the competition that is happening between businesses and customers and whatever, all these people competing to gain the most amount of profit, to create the most efficient businesses, and so on and so forth. This rep represents the great marketplace battle of capitalism. Okay, so I fleshed it out a little bit here. 
little ba money bags. These are all different businesses, capitalists, capitalist interests competing in the market, right? And in our capitalist of old, our Adam Smith conception of capitalism, what is the role of the state? The role of the state, as you can probably imagine, is to be the referee. And now we have an NFL referee refereeing a hockey game of money bags, but bear with me here, people. So anyway, his job is to make sure all of these money bags are competing by the rules of the game, which is, of course, set out by the state. The state makes sure that the rules are fair and equitable and enforced in case anybody cheats. But other than that, they're like the referee. They're not going to actually interfere in the game until a rule is actually broken and some sort of punishment needs to be meted out. Unfortunately, what has happened in our system is that the capitalists have gotten, and that the capitalist business interests have gotten so big and so powerful that now, there we go, we'll make one of them like super big here. And we have this really big money bag here. He's sucking up all the other money bags. And now all of a sudden he's giant. He's bigger than the ref and he's bigger than the state. And he can come in and he can basically use his wads of money to dictate what he wants. And now rig the rules of the game in order to benefit whatever would most adequately benefit his side. Maybe he now rigs the rules of the game so the other side of the arena has to start with unsharpened blades or something like that. Or they don't get <laughs> shoulder pads. You know what I'm saying. They get some sort of disadvantage where, of course, the big player has been able to engineer this advantage because he has become powerful enough that he has overtaken the referee and has now overtaken the rules of the game where it's setting it for themselves. And realistically, most people and most conservatives and right-leaning people will tell you that they are against this when you actually talk to them and you explain things like this, you explain what's happening. And most people agree that there is a huge issue of corporations having too much power and too much influence on the government. And that's something that is on both the right and left. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, though, a lot of right-leaning people, particularly in the United States, um, seem very uninterested in enforcing the rules of the game or empowering the referee so they can once again take control of the game and enforce an adequate fair playing field for everybody. Again, a right-wing person would probably say that they are against the growing corporate power and its influence that it has on government, but in the same breath, they would say, I'm against increasing consumer protections. I am against adding more regulations to businesses so it makes it harder for them to absorb other entities. They're against putting larger barriers between government and business to prevent business from having outsized influence on government policy. While they may say that they are against this type of scenario, when push comes to shove, they aren't actually for any of the measures that would result in this trend reversing. But there is one group of capitalists, of right wingers who, despite the fact that I really despise everything that their ideology stands for and everything that they purport, at least they are honest that they are completely abandoning 
the principles of Adam Smith when it comes to their economic vision of the future. They are completely accepting that they are no longer the old form of capitalist, but a new form of capitalist. And these people are, of course, the anarcho-capitalists. My sworn nemesis in absolutely all forms, but I will say at least they are ideologically consistent. Because effectively what the anarcho-capitalists are saying is good. Let the big capitalist players absorb the referees. Let them set the rules of the game. They're going to set better rules of the game than the old referee anyway. And we should just sit back and let that process happen. Just let corporations grow bigger and eventually end up running the show. And you know what? At least they're surrendering. They're surrendering to where the trend, unfortunately, does seem like it's going. And I've said this before, and even in my old content, my old video logs and political ramblings that I used to talk about in university, I've been saying this since that time, that the fundamental defining power struggle for our generation is going to be the struggle between corporate power and government power. And I hope to God that government power will be the reigning champion in that battle. And with that, I think that's a great place to end our show. I want to thank you guys for watching. Sorry again, it was a little bit low energy and a little bit more rambling than it usually is. But maybe you got some interesting gems and nuggets of wisdom out of it. And with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been The Comrade signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care.